The People's Constitution, the path to empowerment of Australians in a 21st century democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Chapter 6, Part 3, Causal Factors in Australia's Abuse of Human Rights. If Australia is to have a chance of reversing its record as an abuser of human rights, we will need to examine elements of our cultural attitudes and viewpoints and assess the extent to which these are causal factors in the abuse. The most serious abuses of human rights in Australia arise from three main causes, which might be described as destructive mindsets in our governance. One is Australia's desire to protect itself from terrorism, a natural and understandable mindset, but one that has become more intense since 2001 and has been used to licence increasing restrictions and breaches of human rights to a degree that is disproportionate to the threat of terrorism. The second is the desire of successive Australian governments to retain possession of title to certain lands where native title hasn't been extinguished and resources, particularly mineral resources, but also water rights, and to maintain possession of those titles and rights, or the right to dispose of them, without providing compensation to the original Indigenous possessors, a mindset which has been constant since colonisation. The third is the desire of Australian governments from time to time to build support for entry into wars, a mindset constant since colonisation, but which has been deeply embedded since World War I, with great loss of life and at the expense of human rights. Each of these destructive mindsets is fuelled by domestic political considerations, and each is enabled by the inadequacies of the Constitution. Analysis of these mindsets can show how pervasive they are and how difficult it will be to shed them but shed them we must if we are to secure human rights for Australians. Chapter 6, Part 4, Destructive Mindset Number 1, The Perceived Need to Counter Threats of Terrorism. In the first of these causal factors in abuse of our human rights, the perceived need to counter threats of terrorism, Australia probably behaves neither better nor worse than several other powerful countries in allowing human rights abuses to occur within its area of control, ostensibly for the sake of protecting us from terrorism, although the scale on which we might commit such crimes or allow them to be committed may be somewhat smaller due to our remoteness from the theatre of many of the world's conflicts and the fact that we share no borders with other countries. Because of this remoteness, we have also, for the most part, been conveniently able to shield ourselves from too close a view of any of our own crimes by the creation of offshore processing and detention facilities and by the sheer remoteness of communities on the continent where these crimes and abuses may abound, that is, in Indigenous communities. In relation to non-citizens, we have directly or indirectly perpetrated these abuses on immigrants and refugees who in large part have committed no crime themselves but have nevertheless been transferred to vile places outside our view where they have been detained in appalling conditions, subjected to what is defined as torture 
under the Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman or Degrading Treatment or Punishment and subjected to other denials of their rights under a number of treaties to which Australia is a party. As I have said, Australia's treatment of refugees and other people suspected of contemplating terrorism may be no worse than several other countries, although if a character like Donald Trump, a US president who took pride in separating refugee children from their parents, can see fit to shower our Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, with praise for our offshore detention in terms as blackly comedic as, you are worse than I am, then it is surely time for a reappraisal. Such compliments indicate that we have entered a race to the bottom in showcasing who can be the cruelest. This is certainly the view of large numbers of other countries, 47 of which raise serious concerns about the Australian government's refugee, asylum and immigration detention policies when Australia's human rights record came up for its third five-yearly Universal Periodic Review, UPR, in 2021. As the Refugee Council of Australia reported, quote, Of the 122 UN member states participating in Australia's UPR hearing before the UN Human Rights Council on 20 January 2021, 45 states made comments or recommendations on refugee and detention policies and another two states raised formal questions prior to the session. Critical to the 50 formal recommendations were the issues of offshore processing of people seeking asylum, indefinite immigration detention, lack of legislation to prohibit detention of children, refoulement and lack of compliance of Australia's asylum and border management policies with international law. Unquote. Australia has clearly sunk to a point where we showcase human rights abuses as a deterrent to asylum seekers. And we do this by design. It is deliberate. In the view of organisations such as Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, Australia displays a level of deliberate cruelty that surpasses most other countries. Quote, Few other countries go to such lengths to deliberately inflict suffering on people seeking safety and freedom. Australian authorities are well aware of the abuses on Nauru. The Australian Human Rights Commission, the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, a Senate Select Committee and a government-appointed independent expert have each highlighted many of these practices and called on the government to change them. The Australian government's persistent failure to address abuses committed under its authority on Nauru strongly suggest that they are adopted or condoned as a matter of policy. Unquote. Nevertheless, this policy of performative cruelty is known to be a risk to our international reputation. Therefore, for purposes of protecting ourselves against a charge of criminality in this deliberate design, Australia has steadfastly refused over recent decades to revoke its reservations regarding Articles 10, 14 and 20 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. By maintaining these reservations, we have attempted to persuade ourselves and the world that we can derogate from our duties under the covenant in a way that we would condemn for other nations and that we can, among other things, freely expose women and children to harm and or shield ourselves from compensation claims for 
abuses and crimes committed in Australian jails and detention centres within Australian territory or offshore, and for breaches of the principle that all people are equal before the law. We may persuade ourselves that we need to commit these abuses for national security purposes, but that does not make them any less a crime. To the extent that the mindset of using the need to avert terrorism as an excuse for depriving people of their rights may lead to horrific crimes, if it hasn't already, it must be considered that a review of the necessity of this particular mindset is overdue and that there would surely be benefits in reappraising the extent to which terrorism is really a threat in Australia relative to the damage we do to other things we value, such as our reputation, integrity and fundamental humanity by too great a focus on national security at the expense of human rights. Chapter 6, Part 5 Destructive Mindset Number 2 The Desire to Thwart Native Title Claims In the case of the second causal factor in our abuse of human rights, the desire to thwart native title claims, Australia probably behaves worse than any other nation in the current century. As the Australian NGO Coalition has noted, quote, Australia remains the only former British colony without a treaty with its First Nations, unquote. Without a treaty and an Indigenous voice to Parliament enshrined in the Constitution, Australia will find it impossible to address the current extraordinary social and economic disparity and political marginalisation of Aboriginal communities. In some respects, such as the incarceration rate for Australia's Indigenes, that disparity is the worst in the developed world. It will only get worse if there is no constitutional recognition for Australia's First Nations. And as the economic disparity worsens and the disparity in the political influence of First Nations compared to mining and fossil fuel interests widens, so the nation's contribution and vulnerability to climate change will spiral towards catastrophe. So this mindset, too, is long overdue for reappraisal. Chapter 6, Part 6, Destructive Mindset Number 3 The Desire of Australian Governments to Build Support for War In the case of the third causal factor in our human rights abuses, the desire of Australian governments to build support for wars, this is probably the most destructive mindset of all within our governance system. We tolerate it at our direct peril, inasmuch as it increases Australia's exposure to retaliatory attack on military and or economic fronts. And we tolerate it at the immediate expense of our freedoms, inasmuch as the mindset schools Australians to accept a loss of freedoms for the sake of national security, even though the threat to our national security is one of our own making when we seek to be an aggressor. Australia is often an aggressor, injecting itself into conflicts in territories that have not posed a direct threat to us. Our history is as a nation that seeks to fight the wars of other countries, particularly Britain and the US. Australia is a subaltern to these powers. And to ensure it stays that way, Australian governments have worked hard to build war and readiness for war into the national psyche ever since Gallipoli, where we submitted our sons as cannon fodder in a country on the other side of the world that had not attacked us. 
We have been schooled to assume that war and war heroism are essential parts of our identity, so much so that the topic of government obligations to Australians to secure peace hardly features in our national discourse. In any sane governance system, even in the modern Hobbesian state, citizens should be able to expect that their governments will consider it their primary duty to protect them from war. In particular, Australians should expect their governments not to provoke or start one ever. But the default stance is that war readiness must be maintained and for that purpose Australians should be denied their rights and even the right of protection from war itself. The world is a place of constant global conflict, but the right to protection from war would be available to Australians to the fullest extent possible in such a world if the government exercised responsible compliance with its obligations under Article 20 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And yet, successive Australian governments have refused to do that. Article 20 states that, quote, 1. Any propaganda for war shall be prohibited by law. And 2. Any advocacy of national, racial or religious hatred that constitutes incitement to discrimination, hostility or violence shall be prohibited by law, unquote. In an attempt to comply with at least some of the spirit of this article, Australia enacted the Racial Discrimination Act in 1975. This legislation was amended in 1995 by the Racial Hatred Act, and it prohibits acts designed to offend, insult, humiliate, intimidate, or discriminate against persons on the basis of race, colour, national or ethnic origin. Several states but not the Northern Territory, have also legislated against racial vilification and incitement to racial hatred. In general, though, war propaganda is not unlawful in Australia, and we might reasonably assume that any such propaganda in the form of a national policy or executive statement by the federal government itself could lawfully include racially discriminatory postures and policies. These policies could manifest in the domestic setting, for instance, through segregation or internment preparatory to or during war, particularly of citizens with Asiatic or Muslim heritage. In reality, they already do manifest in the domestic setting in the form of illegal detention of genuine refugees and denial of their rights under international law. But they are also apparent in their deep intrusion into the lives of all citizens in metadata laws enacted in 2015. The metadata laws made under the Telecommunications Interception and Access Amendment Data Retention Act 2015 require phone and internet providers to store metadata of all subscribers. But they are by no means a benign instrument. They are quite specifically designed to provide a platform on which abuses of power by intelligence agencies can be more easily mounted, including selective misuse of metadata to form a reasonable suspicion that a person has committed an offence, even though the actual content of the calls, emails and internet browsing are not being stored. Based on said reasonable suspicion, formed with no evidence other than a log of a call, email or internet search, a person can be raided, 
detained without charge, provided with no information of the nature of any offence, and is unable to complain because it is now a criminal offence to disclose information relating to, quote, special intelligence operations, unquote. These metadata laws are just one part of a wider framework of anti-terrorism laws which significantly erode the rights of Australians without sufficient accountability and safeguards being in place to prevent abuse of the extra powers granted under these laws. They include over 80 pieces of legislation since 2002, several of which introduce or increase powers of police to hold people in police custody without charge, powers of surveillance and interrogation of non-suspects, powers of monitoring non-suspects' computers and powers of coercion in testimony. They also introduce or increase secret warrants and secret evidence, warrantless search powers for persons and homes, immunity from civil and criminal prosecution for ASIO officers in covert special intelligence operations, except in cases of torture, murder and rape, and powers to jail journalists who inadvertently reveal ASIO special intelligence operations. In short, these policies that are ostensibly designed to keep us safe from the threat of terrorism and wars, wars we are told by defence hawks are necessary to protect what, on Anzac Day in 2021, the Secretary of Home Affairs, Mike Pizzullo, called our precious liberty, are already seriously impacting the precious liberty of citizens. In the international setting, these racially discriminatory postures and policies are fully manifest in the obvious antagonism of Australian defence hawks towards China and Russia. This antagonism, reliant as it is on the vague and hitherto unsubstantiated assertions of threats to our liberty being posed by authoritarian regimes, is the equivalent of the sort of advocacy of national hatred that is prohibited under Article 20 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. This sort of advocacy, particularly when it is used in relation to China, is only poorly disguised racism. It is very effective in inciting many Australians into supporting hostility and possibly violence, meaning war, with China. As the director of the Australia Institute's International and Security Affairs Program and former Senior Foreign Affairs Attorney-General's and Defence Official Alan Beam observed after nationwide research polling Australian and Taiwanese attitudes to China in August 2022, quote, The more that the anti-China lobby beats the drums of war, the more afraid of China Australians become. This research indicates that the rhetoric on China and the fear-mongering around the risk of war has had an impact on public opinion. It is astonishing that Australians are more afraid of an attack from China than the Taiwanese are. The results show popular opinion is detached from geopolitical and geostrategic reality. The results support the case for a reset in the Australia-China relationship and the manner in which we hold this important national conversation. Such a reset should be based on facts and the national interest rather than the fear peddling we saw in the recent Australian federal election by some for domestic partisan interests." Unquote. The effectiveness of this anti-China propaganda as an incitement to war has been increased, unfortunately, by the fact that over the four years to 2022, 
large sections of Australian news media businesses weighed in on the discourse by adopting words such as aggressive in relation to China and did so without actually providing tangible evidence of aggression towards Australia from that source, certainly not military aggression. For instance, China was not reported to have conducted in Australian waters the sort of forward military activities by which Australia aggressively probes and targets the defences of China in the South China Sea. At the time of writing, China does not appear to have reacted to that aggression with tit-for-tat intrusion into Australian waters. Nevertheless, Australian governments have licensed themselves to do in Chinese waters and its nearby international waters what they would surely not tolerate in their own. Australian governments do not stop to ask themselves how they would feel if Chinese intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance planes were operating off our coast, probing our defences and even dropping sono boys to detect our submarines, as Australia has done in the South China Sea. The fact is that neither Russia nor China has adopted an aggressive stance towards Australia. And although sections of the media and even the Prime Minister in 2022, Anthony Albanese, might have preferred to portray China's complaints about Australia's treatment of trade relationships with China and its suggestions on how these relationships could be improved as demands, there is no evidence that China has made demands of Australia at all let alone unreasonable demands which threaten our sovereignty. Nor could it be said that China's agreements with some Pacific nations on various economic and civil assistance programs constitute a threat to Australia or a restrictive intrusion into our region. More thoughtful commentators have struggled to provide some balance to this portrayal of China as aggressive towards Australia. Experienced diplomats such as Jeff Raby, a former ambassador to China, has stated that, quote, Exercising military power to create the new world order is not part of China's grand strategy. Military strength is for China's own security, not regional or global hegemony, unquote. But such views and the substantial evidence these more thoughtful analysts provide in support of their assessments of China have had little effect in calming the situation and the fears of Australians. Instead, at least until the time of writing, the tension and fear has escalated, prompted by a drums-of-war discourse so irresponsibly brandished by Canberra hawks. The implication of this hawkishness is that Australia could win a war with China when the odds are plainly that we would not. At the very best, we would have to expect that we could not emerge unscathed. Experienced analysts who should be listened to have shown that even with America's help, Australia could not succeed in a war with China and that America itself is unlikely to succeed in such a war despite its military might. Ironically, what this might suggest is that for all the bluster of its China hawks, Australia is unlikely to hazard a real war with China. Hawks might be irresponsible, but they're not likely to be that stupid. It is much more likely that the point of the bluster and the senseless proposal for spending on nuclear submarines under AUKUS lies elsewhere. It lies probably 
in the competition between the defence establishment and the rest of the public sector for funding and in the desire of the American military and arms industry for more buyers. But it also lies in the value it offers, at least to the most conservative and secretive in our polity, in creation of an illusion that the rights of Australians need to be curtailed and more than that, need to be considered as a threat in and of themselves to the very national security we crave rather than as the legitimate primary object of the citizens who choose to live their lives in a democratic country precisely because they think these rights will be available. The bluster serves the purpose of quelling calls for these rights. It is difficult to understand why Australian politicians are unique among democratic countries in the developed world in not prioritising human rights. But the fact is that the vast majority have shown no sign of paying any more than lip service to the codification of rights in law, at least not at the federal level. Some progressive politicians, such as Gareth Evans, Gough Whitlam and Susan Ryan, have prominently championed constitutional reform for human rights purposes, or more specifically, to provide protections for individuals against the misuse of government power. As Gareth Evans and others observed in 1983, quote, A frequent complaint is that the framers of the Constitution were so interested in preserving state rights that they forgot about the fundamental rights and liberties of the citizens. That complaint has been expressed by many civil liberties councils, constitutional reform groups and others who have argued that since the cornerstone of liberal democracy is the individual, our constitution should contain a Bill of Rights. As the former New South Wales Attorney General Mr Walker put it, there are things so fundamental that they should not be left to the whim or arrogance of the government of the day. More narrowly, it has been argued that a macarata or compact between white and black Australians might appropriately be given a constitutional foundation, the object being to right a wrong and to establish a firm foundation for the future relationships of Aborigines and other inhabitants. Unquote. These remarks were made in 1983, when, of course, many politically active Australians would still have been reeling from the spectacular example of misuse of power that brought about the dismissal of a Prime Minister by a Governor-General in 1975, the nearest we have ever come to a constitutional crisis. But 40 years later, Australia has still made no progress towards embedding the fundamental rights and liberties of the citizens in law. And the foreshadowed need for a Makarata with a constitutional foundation is also still in doubt, although there is some movement on that particular front. Any detached assessment would have to conclude that progress at the federal level for any Australian, black, white or otherwise, is non-existent when it comes to human rights. If anything, we've gone backwards and an increase in racism in both political and general discourse, but especially in discourse surrounding defence policy, is the result. Fundamentally, Australia's defence and intelligence establishment, but notably not the diplomatic corps, has, at least between 2016 and 2022, persisted with a strong undertone of racism in defence postures. 
This is a discourse which runs contrary to the spirit, if not the terms, of international law under Article 20. And yet it is not illegal in Australia. On the contrary, it is enabled here because the Constitution is structured in Section 5126 to allow the federal government to make laws, quote, for the people of any race, unquote, and confers unlimited external powers on the Commonwealth, Section 5129. Notwithstanding the Racial Discrimination Act 1975, there is no effective limit on the extent to which an Australian government may permit itself to be discriminatory on the basis of race and to use that discriminatory power to incite war. To summarise, the inadequacies of Australia's constitution render it antithetical to peace. It acts instead as a blanket permission for incitement to war. In the 21st century, Australian defence hawks take full advantage of that permission, very often in a manner that is contrary to the best interests of Australians and fully at odds with preservation of their liberties, their rights and freedoms, not to mention peace itself. Since 2002, Australian governments have persisted in enabling themselves to obviate human rights considerations in their policies on war, defence, military and weapons build-up, strategic alliances, intelligence, secrecy, privacy and any other national security consideration, legitimate or illegitimate. Legally, rights can be trashed on the basis of race and so can races themselves if it helps to build an appetite for war. As I have already said, this is fully contrary to the purpose of Article 20 and in refusing to withdraw our reservation on the article, Australia is doing nothing less than licensing itself to behave as a fascist, pugnacious, warmongering state. This is the inevitable result of the entrenched practice of successive Australian governments to prioritise war over peace in policy and in general discourse on the national identity. In an attempt to justify its refusal to make war propaganda illegal, Australia has stated that in relation to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, quote, Australia interprets the rights provided for by Articles 19, 21 and 22 as consistent with Article 20. Accordingly, the Commonwealth and the constituent states, having legislated with respect to the subject matter of the article in matters of practical concern in the interests of public order, the right is reserved not to introduce any further legislative provision on these matters. Unquote. In this entirely specious argument, Australia is asserting that it may rest on legislation it has created that supports the rights of Australians to freedom of expression, Article 19, Assembly, Article 21, and Association, Article 22. But these rights have not been codified in legislation at the federal level, and it is fully misleading to imply that they have. On the contrary, since 2001, these rights have been reduced by federal legislation. Nevertheless, in misleading submissions to the Universal Periodic Reviews, the Australian Government has brazenly persisted with assertions that its credentials in protection of human rights are demonstrated thus. Quote, the Australian Government is focused on protecting civil and political rights for all persons within Australia. The High Court has interpreted Australia's constitution to include a fundamental protection for the freedom of political communication. 
Other fundamental rights and freedoms, such as freedom of expression more generally, are protected by the general common law presumption that in the absence of clear and unambiguous legislation to the contrary, parliaments do not intend to interfere with the fundamental rights and freedoms of Australians. All Australians are free to express their views within the framework of Australian law, including controversial and challenging ideas and opinions. Unquote. This attempted assertion of the Australian government's credentials as a supporter of political rights, such as the right to free speech, is false. For a start, the High Court has not interpreted Australia's constitution to include a fundamental protection for the freedom of political communication. The Court has found that freedom of political communication is implied by the constitution, but it is not a personal right of individuals and only applies in certain circumstances. For instance, the Court ruled that the right to freedom of political communication could not be relied on by federal public servant Michaela Banerjee, who in 2018 appealed unsuccessfully against the termination of her employment by Comcare for her anonymous social media posts criticising Australian government immigration policy. The ruling against Michaela Banerjee demonstrated that not only is freedom of political communication not a right conferred on individual Australians, it may also not be relied on by public servants in general. By virtue of the Banerjee ruling, public servants would be wise to assume that they should not seek to exercise a right to free expression lest they lose their job. The ruling emboldened the government to increase its suppression of free speech by public servants by tightening Australian public service guidelines so that they restrict public comment by public servants, even to the point of prohibiting a like on a politically charged Facebook comment. Something is on the verge of being seriously out of joint in terms of equal rights in Australia, especially when someone contemplating joining the public service must simultaneously contemplate giving up the right to participate in civic debate. And no other conclusion can be drawn than that it is an outright lie for the federal government to testify to the Universal Periodic Review that all Australians are free to express their views within the framework of Australian law, including controversial and challenging ideas and opinions. Clearly, all Australians are not so free. Beyond the sobering example in the Banerjee case of systematic denial of a fundamental human right, it is also plainly specious for the government to assert, as it did in the quote I have just cited, that freedom of expression in Australia is protected by, quote, the general common law presumption that in the absence of clear and unambiguous legislation to the contrary, parliaments do not intend to interfere with fundamental rights and freedoms, unquote. This is nothing more than a statement that the right to free expression will only be tolerated by the government for as long as it doesn't make a law against it. And since Australian governments in the 21st century have frequently made laws against it, laws which they seek to defend on the grounds of national security or any other ground they can find, the statement is entirely disingenuous. Some of these laws are truly frightening. They include laws which treat journalism and peaceful protest as espionage and impose extensive prison sentences, 25 years to life, merely for reporting or dealing with 
information or an article which concerns Australia's national security. They include laws which place the onus of proof on the defendants. In other words, the government does not have to prove you did it. You have to prove you didn't. In effect, this removes the presumption of innocence for defendants. They also include laws which enable the Commonwealth to refuse access by a defendant to evidence necessary for their defence, rob defendants, particularly whistleblowers making genuine public interest disclosures, including of government misconduct in national security matters, of the right to plead public interest as a defence, and they include laws which trigger wide-ranging suppression of any outside scrutiny or media reporting. These laws can consign any Australian, no matter how responsible, innocent and peaceful, to a nightmare of repression, torture and ruin. None of this escapes the attention of either the United Nations or its member states. In their eyes, Australia will not be seen as a state where parliaments do not intend to interfere with fundamental rights and freedoms. On the contrary, successive Australian parliaments have displayed an escalating tendency to do the opposite. The apparent stubbornness with which Australia resists removing its reservation about Article 20 and continues to legislate against human rights, particularly the rights to free speech, is testimony to the stubbornness of its commitment to building support for war whenever a government may wish. In the main, this wish to build support for war will be politically motivated for domestic electioneering purposes as it was in the lead-up to the 2022 federal election, rather than having anything to do with the actual need to defend Australia from aggression and external threats. Both major parties, Labor and Liberal National, seek to rely on election tactics that engender fear about terrorism and war. That is, they rely on war propaganda or discourses which attempt to legitimise war. They both heavily prioritise discourse favouring war over any discourse on peace. This is evident in the policy platforms of the two major parties for the 2022 election, platforms which almost identically prioritise arms escalation over diplomacy and human rights. These two party platforms, in their unambiguous preference for war over peace and human rights, are fully antithetical to the Charter of the United Nations the Charter that we played a major role in developing after World War II and to which we are a signatory. As the Charter says, quote, We the peoples of the United Nations, determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind, and to reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights, in the equal dignity and worth of the human person, in the equal rights of men and women and of nations large and small, and to establish conditions under which justice and respect for the obligations arising from treaties and other sources of international law can be maintained, and to promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom. And for these ends, to practice tolerance and live together in peace with one another as good neighbours and to unite our strength to maintain international peace and security and to ensure, 
by the acceptance of principles and the institution of methods that armed force shall not be used, save in the common interest, and to employ international machinery for the promotion of the economic and social advancements of all peoples, have resolved to combine our efforts to accomplish these aims." Unquote. On at least three of these determinations and aims, Australia has failed in the 21st century to live up to the full measure of its resolve. In refusing to withdraw reservations about Articles 10, 14 and 20 in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and by virtue of promotion of aggressive defence policies, not to mention breaches of the rule of law in several international matters, it has largely fail to establish conditions under which justice and respect for the obligations arising from treaties and other sources of international law can be maintained, failed to unite our strength to maintain international peace and security, and failed to ensure, by the acceptance of principles in the institution of methods, that armed force shall not be used, save in the common interest. Other nations have, of course, failed in these matters too, but Australia cannot exonerate itself, Despite being one of the first signatories on this charter, Australia, apart from a brief period between the late 1970s and the end of the Cold War, has persistently pursued war at the expense of human rights, our own and that of others. We live with a constitution which enables the fabrication of policies to help Australia start a war like Iraq or enter one that is offensive rather than defensive like Vietnam. It is well suited to starting wars and entirely ill-suited to avoiding or ending them. It is well suited to denying rights rather than preserving them. The Constitution likewise facilitates suppression of dissenting voices on climate change, treatment of refugees and Indigenous exclusion. And it will continue to deny Australians those rights for as long as it contains no Charter of Human Rights.